0: the last episode, we left the Americans struggling to punch through the Japanese defences at Boona, and the 16th Australian Infantry Brigade pretty much stopped dead on the San Ananda track. Fair to say, after this stage, the Japanese are having the best of the argument. The attack on the left flank of the Japanese position was to be made by the 25th Australian Brigade at Gona. The Japanese were reinforcing their beachhead defences, and the longer it took the 25th to take Gona, the stronger those defences would become. But the 25th was on its last legs, having chased the enemy across the Owen Stanley Range. Would they too be held as their comrades had been at Boona and San Ananda? Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. First up, I've been remiss in giving some shoutouts to the listeners who have made contact with me recently. What can I say? I'm a bad, bad podcaster, and I'm suitably chastised. So a big thank you to Shivers and Regal for their comments and reviews on iTunes, and Ross Manuel, producer of the I Was Only Doing My Job podcast, Andrew Parks, who sent me some photos of some fantastic models he makes, and finally, Chris Young. It turns out Chris had the honour of working with a couple of the pilots who flew that resupply mission into Long Tan. And he raised a good point. I had said that Little Paddy and Cold Joy should never have been allowed to come into Dat for the concert after the mortar attack early that morning. Chris pointed out that if they hadn't, then those choppers wouldn't have been available to supply the supplies in, and the battle would almost certainly have been lost. It is a good point, but I stand by my statement. It was more good luck than good management. And secondly, just like the last episode, this episode is sponsored by History Guild in conjunction with the Military History and Heritage Victoria Conference on the Bloody Beachheads. If you haven't checked out historyguild.com yet, then please know that I'm very disappointed in you, and a stern letter will be sent home after school. They've got all kinds of interesting articles. I've just been reading a couple about the impact the Thirty Years' War had on Germany and Spain in the 1600s. So go on, hit pause, follow the link in the show notes, and pop over and check them out. I'll be here when you get back. And you're back. See, I told you I'd be here. And now, on to today's offerings. You know that feeling you get when you make a plan and you follow it through and everything works out exactly how you planned it to work out? Yeah, neither do I. See, initially, this topic was supposed to be a two-part series. However, as is normally happens when I make plans, that's not going to be the case. It will, in fact, be a three-part series on the Battle of Gona, Boona and San Ananda. This second episode will focus on the Battle of Gona We'll finish off for the next episode looking at the Australians at Buna and the attack on the Buna government station. The initial attempt at Gona was conducted by the 25th Brigade under Brigadier Ether. Joining them was a force consisting of one company from each of the 21st Brigade's battalions. The 21st was the brigade which faced the Japanese onslaught from Issyarava and had been pretty badly knocked about in the process. While the 25th took care of forcing the Japanese back, the 21st went in to recuperate and reinforce. But Brigadier Potts wasn't content to have his brigade sitting around twiddling their thumbs. He wanted a force to conduct long-range harassment of Japanese lines of communication between Wairopi, at the foot of the ranges, and the Japanese bases at Buna and Gona. He assembled one company from each of his battalions, and under the command of Colonel Hugh Challen, Force was created. By the time Brigadier Ether's 25th Brigade had arrived in the north, Force had become quite accustomed to the area, and formed an integral part of Ether's plans to take Gona. Gona Mission is situated on the coast and is bordered by Gona Creek on the west and Small Creek about half a mile to the east. It was heavily defended by dug-in bunkers with solid timber overhead cover. A company-sized patrol was sent forward under Captain Thorne of the 2nd 25th Battalion, but soon came under heavy fire and they were halted. Lieutenant Colonel Miller sent his other companies around either side of Thorne but by late afternoon all three companies were checked in a semicircle around Gona. Ether advised Miller that if he felt the village could be taken, then he could have some men from the second thirty third battalion to assist, but also advised there would be no ammunition resupply until the following day. But as the night progressed the situation became untenable. Food and ammunition were just about exhausted. Thorne was dead and a number of other officers had been wounded along with thirty two other ranks dead or wounded. Ether ordered Miller to break contact and to pull back towards the rest of the brigade. The attempt did allow Miller to gain a bit of an insight as to the layout of the defences, and while in the position, he had noticed the sound of trucks and other equipment within the Japanese perimeter, suggesting that the defences were being strengthened even further. And not all the enemy were necessarily in front of the Australians. The regimental doctor reported that one of the stragglers of the brigade had been found strangled and his rifle and equipment missing. Another straggler was reported as missing as well. Ether had little choice but to hold off until sufficient supplies could be brought in to his troops and so the 20th and 21st was devoted to maintaining their current positions and building up the supplies. The main attack on Gona was scheduled for the 22nd. The 2nd 31st and 2nd 33rd battalions would make the attack with the 2nd 25th held in reserve. Late on the 21st, the battalions moved out and by 9.30pm a patrol of the 2nd 33rd had reached the beach east of Gona and had only experienced minor contact with the Japanese. At 6.30 the following morning, the attack commenced and heavy resistance was encountered about a 1,000 yards south of the village itself. Ether pushed the 2nd 31st to the east to come around the 2nd 33rd and push in from that direction. The 2nd 31st moved forward through the heavily timbered ground and emerged in a kunai patch with the swamp on their left and the beach on their right. It didn't allow much room for manoeuvre. By 6pm they were about 300 yards from the Japanese position. The battalion diarist recorded what happened next. At zero the men rose and were immediately met by a most intense fire from the front and right flank. They cheered and yelled as they advanced and returned a heavy barrage of automatic fire. They reached the Jap pits but were not strong enough to continue as they were enflated from both sides. Lieutenant Phelps was killed, Captain Beasley missing, believed killed, and Lieutenant Hayes wounded. The attack died down, but the enemy continued a most intense rate of fire. End quote. All up, this attempt cost the 2nd 31st 65 casualties. The remainder formed a thin perimeter and prepared for the counter-attack, which fortunately didn't come. Ether then ordered the 2nd 25th to head to the east and attack the following day. This attack on the 23rd managed to gain a small amount of ground at the cost of two officers and 62 other ranks. They had to withdraw after dark to avoid being overrun by a Japanese counter-attack. Things were not going well for Ether. it was clear that the eastern defences were incredibly strong and it was looking as though he didn't have the number of fit, healthy troops he needed to overcome them. He decided he'd test out the western side. This would involve crossing the Gona Creek, which although not terribly deep, it would slow the advance and leave the attackers vulnerable. He proposed to overcome this by unleashing all his available air support. His request was approved on the 24th and he was told to remove his troops back to a safe distance. Throughout the 25th, the position was bombed and strafed for most of the day, making the Japanese troops somewhat reluctant to move about in the open. Late in the day, Ether put in his attack from the west. The troops pushed across the creek with little opposition and moved towards the village with support from the mortars and machine guns as well as four 25-pound artillery guns. They managed to push 50 yards into the Japanese position, but the well-prepared bunkers proved impenetrable and by 5.30pm they were forced to withdraw. The failures on the 22nd, 23rd, and 25th convinced Ether that he simply didn't have the troops to take the objectives given to them. For now, he would just have to contain the Japanese and harass them as much as possible until help arrived. The Japanese, for their part, had no intention of being contained. As night fell on the 26th, they staged a vigorous bayonet charge against the 2nd, 33rd, but they were repelled. They then fell on the 2nd, 25th, and were similarly blocked. For the time being, it appeared that the Australians couldn't get in and the Japanese couldn't get out. Elsewhere in New Guinea, other doings were transpiring. Having totally misread the 21st Brigade's achievements on the Kokoda Track, General Blamey sacked Brigadier Potts and appointed Brigadier Doherty to take over. The Brigade was recuperating in Port Moresby at this time, and when Doherty arrived in the Gona area, General Vasey advised that he was considering a couple of options for this Brigade. It was a choice between reinforcing the stalemate on the San Ananda Track, or to assist the 25th at Gona. While his troops were in the process of being transported to the region, Doughty chose to go and check out the situation for himself. He later described his walk to Gona. I set out for Gona, accompanied by Colonel Kingsley, my brigade major, Major Lyon, and two native carriers. The track at that stage had not been made jeepable. Coming back along the track through hot and steamy kunai patches, and along that very muddy stretch through jungle, were many sick and wounded men, aided by the means of the universal stick that was carried. The muddy stretch mentioned was about a mile and a half long, and the mud varied in depth from ankle to knee deep. After rain, it became fluid, and it was then easier to walk through than after a few days' dryness when it became like glue. End quote. So a mile and a half of mud, which could be either liquid or like glue, and the sick and wounded men basically had to make their own way through, supported by nothing more than a stick. That's pretty tough though he felt that all things considered, his troops could be best used in a concentrated attack on one point. He didn't feel that he could split his force between Gona and Ananda, and so after conferring with Brigadier Ether, he settled on supporting the exhausted 25th Brigade at Gona. There was a bit of serendipity to this move, quite apart from its strategic importance. When the 21st Brigade had fought the Japanese to a standstill on the Kokoda track, it was the 25th who took over from the battered troops. Now, around Gona, a reinforced and strong 21st Brigade was returning the favour. The 21st Brigade attack was scheduled to go in on the 29th, but would actually commence on the afternoon of the 28th. Doherty wouldn't have his entire brigade available at the time, but information was received from higher up the food chain that the Japanese would soon be reinforcing the area, and so Doherty was ordered to strike with whatever troops he had available, which basically consisted of the 2nd 14th Battalion, the same battalion which had arrived at Isurava just in the nick of time to assist the 39th in that epic defence. Lieutenant Colonel Challen had rejoined the battalion, but one company of the 2nd 14th was still attached to Char Force. All up, Challon had 350 men to carry out his attack. At this point, dear listener, I encourage you to make haste to the website, as there is a beautiful little photo which you will find useful in following the next bit. The narrative mentions points X, Y and Z, which conveniently are shown on the aforementioned photo. It also gives a good idea of just how small this area of operations actually was. In normal circumstances, you could walk from point X to the Gona mission in half an hour or so. The battalion would make their way to point Y, where it would shake out into a line and lay up for a while. An earlier patrol had reported that point X was clear of enemy, and so the battalion would move to point X a couple of dozen yards from the beach and launch the attack from there. Moving in single file through the swamp, the battalion advanced. Just before darkness set in, Scattered rifle fire broke out. Things were a bit confused for a while, and it was only when Captain Bessette came forward with another platoon that the situation became apparent. When the leading platoon had broken out of the swamp and onto the beach about 300 yards west of Point X, they were engaged by heavy fire from concealed Japanese bunkers. Many of the leading officers had been killed or wounded in this opening barrage, which left the platoons leaderless. Fortunately, Bessette was an experienced commander and soon took control. If you remember the Isuravata-Iyori-Baiwa episode, Stan Bissett was the officer who had stayed with by his wounded brother's side while he died on the Kokoda track. He tried a flanking attack around the left, while another platoon pushed on along the beach, but the casualties were too high and the momentum was lost. By 2am, the battalion had withdrawn back to point Y. Five officers and 27 men had been lost, with not an inch of ground gained. So much for the report that point X was free of enemy. Now he readjusted his plans for the following day, Challen would take the remainder of his force and head to the east where he would pop out onto the beach at Point Z. He would then move forward against the Japanese left flank. At the same time, the 2nd 27th Battalion would pass through Brigadier Ether's troops at a point just to the west of Point X near Small Creek. A heavy airstrike was put in at 11am on the 29th and the 2nd 27th attack was supposed to follow hot on the heels of the aircraft under cover of an artillery bombardment but a navigational error meant that the artillery observation officer missed his rendezvous with Colonel Cooper of the 2nd 27th. Instead of pushing on regardless, Cooper searched for the observer and the commencement of the advance was delayed and it wasn't until after midday that the battalion advanced upon the Japanese positions, which by this stage had fully recovered from the effects of the airstrike. Nevertheless, the advance continued, with Simms Company on the right and Cummings on the left. They were soon driven to ground under heavy fire, after three hours of fighting, Cummings led his men in a charge against a post which was holding up Sims. Cummings, carrying a Bren gun, surged ahead of his company and made directly for a Japanese post which was actually dug under the roots of a tree. His second-in-command, Captain Skipper, followed close behind. The two men cleared the post, but as the rest of the company came forward, they saw the bodies of the two men surrounded by enemy dead. The mad dash had succeeded in taking the position, but the companies had suffered such heavy casualties in the taking that they were then unable to hold on to their gains, and so they withdrew to their initial positions in the undergrowth. Elsewhere on the battlefield, other fighting was taking place. To the south of Gona village, the 2nd 33rd and the 3rd Battalion made another push either side of the track leading into the village. One small party actually managed to penetrate into the village itself, but was soon forced out by heavy fire. Nonetheless, the 3rd Battalion managed to establish secure positions on the edge of the timber surrounding the village. The 2nd 33rd attack was held up. Off to the east, Challen and his 2nd 14th moved to establish a block at Point Z to secure the rear of the 2nd 27th. Moving beyond Point Z, he came into contact with a well-fortified Japanese position which halted his leading company. Privates Varley and Thompson pushed forward into the Japanese fire and raked the position with their Bren guns. This convinced the Japanese to keep their heads down and the company was able to move forward, but not before Onflate fire killed the two men who had made the advance possible. The hard fighting continued, with the battalion suffering ever more casualties. Eventually, Challon had little choice but to withdraw his battalion back to Point Z. It had been another disappointing day for the Australians. Some small gains had been made to the south of Gona, and Challon had managed to set up a block at Point Z. But, by and large, despite suffering heavy casualties, the 21st and 25th Brigades were no closer to taking the village. Doughty presented his plans for the following day's fighting to Vasey early that evening. His whole brigade was now in the area with the arrival of Lieutenant Colonel Caro's 2nd 16th Battalion. This battalion would form the protection for brigade headquarters while also protecting the rear of the 2nd 14th and the 2nd 27th, blocking any Japanese attempt to push in behind either battalion. The fighting on the 30th began with a push by Cooper's 2nd 27th Battalion to the position reached by Cumming the previous day, but heavy machine gun fire forced his men to ground about 90 yards short of the Japanese position. A company from the 2nd 16th, which had been loaned to Cooper, attempted to move up on the left flank of the attack but they were also held. At the same time, the 2nd 14th managed to intercept a Japanese patrol out on the eastern flank. But for the most part, their day consisted of harassing the enemy until later in the day when Corporal Truscott moved his platoon towards the Japanese positions near the beach. After a brief mortar barrage, Truscott and his men charged forward and managed to evict the Japanese from their bunkers. Many of the enemy fled along the beach, while others tried to escape by swimming out to sea. The Australians mowed down many of the retreating enemy. Hot on the heels of Truscott, Captain Bessette was now able to push on to Point X and make firm contact with the right flank of the 2nd 16th. Finally, the Australians had possession of a major section of the beach between Gona and San Ananda. Not that the section of beach was particularly important from a strategic point of view. The Japanese didn't move large numbers of troops between the two villages via the beach far more efficient to move them by boat if necessary. But it was a symbolic victory. Finally, after pushing back from within spitting distance of Port Moresby in the south, the AIF had taken a section of beach to the north. But what to do now? The Japanese were still just as firmly entrenched in Gona as they had been when this whole thing started. But the Australians couldn't just sit there twiddling their thumbs. They simply had to try again the next day. Another company of the 2nd 16th was transferred to Cooper's Command. The rough plan was that the 2nd 27th would recommence their push to the west, the 3rd Battalion would tie into their left flank and then move forward with them. At 5.45am, artillery and water fire was dropped on the Japanese and the 2nd 27th moved forward with bayonets fixed. And things soon went awry. The men on the right, advancing along the beach, took some of the forward posts. But they were then flayed by fire from the left, where their own troops were supposed to be. Something had obviously gone wrong on the left. As it turned out, the men of the 3rd Battalion were waiting to see the left flank of the 2nd 27th move across its front before joining in the advance. But they didn't see them, despite the fact that it was later confirmed that the 27th had indeed passed them early on. They had actually succeeded in pushing into the centre of Gona village where they met heavy fire from their left. The men took shelter in shell holes and defended tenaciously on the understanding that the 3rd would soon silence the enemy that was making life difficult. But the 3rd was still sitting back at their initial start point, still waiting to see the 2nd 27th advance. The position soon became untenable as the Japanese regrouped. The decision was made to withdraw, but on their way out to the east they encountered strong enemy patrols. They then broke to the west across Gona Creek, where the remnants met up with Lieutenant Hattie and his Force platoon. Again, the attempt to seize the village had been beaten back. What would have happened had the 3rd Battalion moved forward when they should have? Who knows? But for the loss of three more officers and 56 men, the AIF was still no closer than they had been at dawn. In a conference with Brigadier Doherty, Bassey said that the Gona force was suffering too many casualties and that he was considering just containing Gona while sending a force to take San Ananda from the east. Keeping in mind of course that at this point the 16th Brigade and the American 126th Regiment were still trying to batter their way through the enemy forces on the San Ananda track. Challon was ordered to take his 2nd 14th troops east along the beach to establish a base from which to launch this attack. Unfortunately, the thick scrub and the swamps hampered Challon and he advanced only as far as Bassabua by the 2nd of December, about 1,500 yards from Point Z. Also on the 2nd, another attempt was made to take Gona, but it was little more than a token effort and was indicative of the state of the troops. They were exhausted and in no state to attempt any full-scale attack. Vasey had some problems which needed solving swiftly. The Americans were stumped at Boona, the combined Australian-US force was blocked on the San Ananda track, and the troops surrounding Gona were buggered. All he had left to throw into the fight was the newly arrived 30th Brigade. This brigade, if you'll remember back to the last episode, was made up of four previous militia battalions. The 49th and the composite 55th-53rd battalions would end up fighting on the San Ananda track. But the mighty 39th was to take up the fight around Gona, under the command of possibly one of the most underrated battalion commanders of the war, Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Honour. There will be a special episode on Lieutenant Colonel Honour coming up in the new year, with any luck? Watch out for that one. It's going to be a cracker. The plan at this stage, the 3rd of December, was to continue the push eastwards towards San Ananda. The 2nd 14th, with their old comrades from Isurava, the 39th, coming in behind, tried to move forward. But despite very little in the way of enemy contact, the move was halted by the terrain. It soon became clear that no approach route could be forced along that path, probably why the Japanese had never done it themselves. And so Vasey was left with no other option but to scrap the plan to come at San Ananda from the west. Brigadier Ether's 25th Brigade were worn out and so they were pulled from the area and Doherty's 21st with the 39th Battalion attached that was to take responsibility for the entire Gona area. The lack of progress on any front, the heavy casualties and the changing plans soon caused some rumblings among the junior commanders. Major Sibley, who had been prominent in the defence of the Kokoda Track, felt that the basic principle of concentration of force had been forgotten. He felt that although the Japanese were reluctant to move above ground, the ever-changing focus of Allied objectives nullified any advantage they may have had in any one area. He wrote, In my opinion, we would have gained more by pinching off one enemy strong point at a time by concentrating manpower with sufficient water fire, shell fire and small arms fire against each post in turn. The remainder of our forces could then have been disposed purely to arrest any attempt by the enemy to reinforce or evacuate Gona. End quote. It's a fair point and worthy of consideration. What if, say, all the artillery, mortar and air support was put in against Buna in support of a concentrated Australian and American force? You would have to think that the Japanese position must surely have fallen in the first few days. Then, all that same support could be turned against Sennananda, while a smaller force was in position to contain the Gona garrison to prevent them moving to support their comrades in the east. It makes sense, but the only thing I can think of that would make such a plan unviable would be the closeness of the terrain. It's all well and good to have thousands of troops in the region where an attack is to take place, but if you can't fit them all into the attack area, then you're back to the same old problem of a limited number of troops being able to make the attack at any one time. But Sibley was there, I wasn't. So I'd probably give more credence to his thoughts than mine. Anyway, on the 4th of December, the 25th Brigade was relieved by the 30th. When they had arrived on the 9th of September, the Brigade had roughly 1,650 troops. By 4th of December, they had lost 32 officers and 615 other ranks killed, wounded, sick and missing. That's basically half the force they went in with, and for no substantial gain. During the night of the 4th 5th of December, Doherty deployed his troops. Brigade Headquarters was about a mile south of Gona, with the 39th acting as protection. The 2nd 14th was basically back at Point Z, while Colonel Caro had command of a composite 2nd 16th, 2nd 27th Battalion positioned along the beach. During the night, a number of patrols were sent out to harass the enemy, killing a number of Japanese while also learning something of their layout. Doughty was content to allow his troops to consolidate their positions on the 5th, but he had also received news from General Herring that the Japanese were likely to land reinforcements from destroyers in the Gona area. Doherty decided to send Caro's composite battalion, and Honor's 39th, to attack Gona on the 6th. Caro was to attack the easternmost Japanese defences, while Honour aimed to seize a line of trees to the southwest of the village. The trees were 4 to 5 feet thick, and the Japanese still had their positions dug in among the roots. Caro's leading platoon managed to get within 10 yards of the first Japanese post, but once again, withering fire forced the attackers to ground, and no further progress was made. Honour sent his men forward early in the morning. On the right, Lieutenant Nelson led his platoon forward, but when they were up to their shoulders in swamp water, the defenders opened up. The swamp, as much as the Japanese, had defeated them and they were forced to withdraw. The main force, led by Captain Bidstrup, advanced on the timber line but were shot to pieces. The smoke screen, which had been intended to cover Bidstrup's advance, only managed to conceal the Japanese positions from the attackers while the defenders could easily make out the advancing Australians. Bidstrup had no way of telling what was happening to his left, but Private Skilbeck of Footscray crossed the open ground under intense fire on four occasions to bring back reports to Bidstrup. Along the way, he grabbed wounded men and brought them back to safety. He was asked to lead a reserve platoon forward, and once again he crossed that open ground under fire, led the platoon forward, and rescued another wounded man in the process. Sergeant Morrison also refused to admit defeat. With his platoon commander wounded, Morrison took control and took his men forward. He was wounded in the hand and then the leg, but still continued shouting orders and directing the platoon while lying on the ground wounded. This first attack cost the 39th 58 men before it ground to a halt and the men withdrew yet again. There was a minor success though. Out on the extreme right flank, Corporal Edgell's section had been ordered to silence an enemy post in that area. It was envisaged that Bidstrup's men, having broken through the tree line, would need to advance through the area. So, using the noise of Bitstrip's attack as a cover, Edgel's men charged forward and succeeded in clearing a network of Japanese positions. But as we've just learned, Bitstrip's attack never made it through the trees, and so Edgel's section was alone in the Japanese defenses. They managed to fight their way out with Edgel and a Bren gunner leading the way. They alone counted for ten or twelve Japanese on their way out. But despite this, it was still one more failure in the attempt to take this small village in northern New Guinea. It's also worth remembering at this point that the western approach to Gona had been held by a char force company from the 2nd 16th Battalion, basically since this whole Gona thing had started. The only reason these attacks from the east had any hope of succeeding was the fact that this force was preventing any Japanese escape to the west or reinforcements coming from that direction. They had been conducting raids and ambushes since early November. They originally had 109 troops, but now they were down to 45, under the command of Lieutenant Hattie. All of those troops were gaunt and exhausted, and most had malaria. They had been bombed by Australian artillery and strafed by Allied aircraft on a number of occasions. Hattie had moved forward to a small village on the 30th of November, further to the west, which became known as Hattie's Village. From here, he had observed between 150 and 200 Japanese troops just to the west of the Amboga River who were heading to reinforce Gona. He brought forward 20 volunteers on the 5th of December, all weak with fever, to help deal with this force. The Japanese closed in on the 6th, and Hattie sent Private Bloomfield back to Charforce headquarters to request assistance. Bloomfield helped three wounded men make their way back, carrying one on his back most of the way, despite being worn out by malaria himself. He made it back and passed on his message to Sergeant Jones, who took the remainder of Force to assist Hattie. This sounds impressive, but it only amounted to fifteen men. They came across a four-man Japanese patrol on their way to Hattie's village, and although all four were killed, they managed to kill Jones. Corporal Murphy took charge and led the rest on to help Hattie together. This worn, sick, and haggard force managed to hold the Japanese reinforcement until the seventh when they were relieved by fifty men from the second fourteenth at about six thirty p m Two of Hattie's men reported to Brigade headquarters and said that another six of them were still out in the bush, but Hattie wasn't among them. His men later wrote of Hattie, He ordered the withdrawal, stating that he would stay to the last. It is mentioned by all his men that Hattie was always placing himself in such positions to enable his men to get out of tight corners, irrespective of the risk attached. From then, until the 2nd 14th found the bodies of Lieutenant Hattie and Private Stevens, they were posted as missing. Stevens' body was in the hut underneath which Hattie had his headquarters. At the time of the Japs' attacked, he was on sentry duty and was hit with a grenade. Lieutenant Hattie's body was found under the hut, and from the evidence around the hut, it proved that Hattie had fought to the last, killing many Japs before they finally got him. It was always Hattie who carried out tasks and volunteered for jobs, which may have resulted in the death of any of his men. On every patrol Hattie was in command of, he insisted on being forward scout. End quote. Back on the main front, the 7th was a pretty quiet day. Doherty had planned for the 39th to make another attack on the back of a heavy airstrike, but the airstrike proved to be less than effective, and Honour refused to send his men against unsubdued defenders. Dowdy agreed, and all offensive action was postponed until the 8th. This was to be Doherty's last throw of the dice. His brigade was down to 37 officers and 755 men, less than battalion strength. Vesey was also considering returning the 39th battalion to his parent brigade to try and break through to San Ananda. If the attack on the 8th proved ineffective, Vasey would simply try to contain Gona while seeking victory in the east. At 11.30am on the 8th, the mortars and artillery began their ranging shots. An hour later, they opened up in full. The gunners were using delayed action shells, which meant that, rather than exploding upon impact with the ground, they would actually sink in a few feet below the surface before detonating. Against the dug-in Japanese, they had devastating impact. Makes you wonder why they didn't use such things earlier. Maybe they did and I just didn't see any mention of it. But on this occasion, they proved to be the game changer. On the right of the track leading into Gona, Captain Gilmore took his company forward while to the left of the track, Captain Seward attacked. Gilmore took his men into the Japanese position while the artillery barrage was still falling. The Japanese were still cowering in their defences, enduring the barrage when all of a sudden they were confronted by a lot of angry Australians. On the company's right, Lieutenant Kelly's platoon smashed into the main Gona mission defences. Private Wilkinson moved into the open and, resting his Bren gun on a tree stump, mowed down the Japanese as they tried to escape. On the company's left, Lieutenant Dolby charged forward with his platoon and smashed into a machine gun post, killing the gunner and capturing the gun. Hot on his heels, his platoon arrived and cleared the remainder of the defenders. Not done yet, Corporal Ellis charged ahead and is reported to have captured the next four posts single-handedly. On the left of the track, Seward wasn't quite so successful. But Honor had planned for this eventuality and rather than trying to force Seward through, he sent him to exploit the breach on the right, while he maintained a smaller force to contain the enemy on the left. By late evening, half the perimeter defences and the central garrison area were now in Australian hands. Along the shore, while the 39th were cracking this nut open, Major Sibley sent the 2nd 27th component of his composite battalion forward. They didn't get far before encountering heavy fire. Lieutenant Maybury took a crew of six men and stormed a key position. Despite being seriously wounded in the head and arm, he remained in command of his crew and secured the position. But any further forward movement was unlikely to produce success, and so Sibley ordered his men to dig in where they were for the night. The Japanese position had been much reduced and many tried to escape. But between Sibley on the right and Honor on the left, the Japanese only had a corridor of about 200 yards across swampy ground to try and make good their escape. But more often than not, they were mown down by Australian fire. Others tried to make their escape via the sea. But despite the darkness, the phosphorescent glow of the waves highlighted the figures moving through, and these men were also destroyed. The following day was spent in squeezing out the final pockets of resistance. The fighting was still hard, and casualties were suffered, but by late afternoon, Gona was finally subdued. Earlier that morning, Honor had sent the now famous message to Brigadier Doherty, advising of the capture of Gona. It only took two words but you can only imagine Doherty's relief when he heard, Gona's gone. And while he was relieved, he also knew the battle wasn't over. Sure, they had taken Gona, but it was far from secure. To the west, at Hattie's village, it was known that a Japanese force of about 600 had gathered. These consisted of the 150 to 200 reinforcements Hattie had stopped a few days earlier, but also had some fresh reinforcements and a large number of troops who had made their way back to the coast after their retreat through the mountains. Gona was never going to be secure with this large body of troops waiting to pounce. And so, after a brief celebration of their victory, Honour was ordered to make haste to the west. With the 2nd-14th component of Charforce leading the way, the 39th moved west via an inland route and Honour turned north to attack the enemy troops who had taken over Hattie's village when the 2nd-14th had pulled out. On the 10th of December, the Australian attack commenced. In the early afternoon, they came across the outer Japanese defences. Corporal Edgell rushed the first post, but the machine gunner wounded him in the right arm. Not wasting a moment, Edgell switched his Owen gun to his left and sprayed the posts, killing all the crew. He then assisted two of his wounded comrades to return to safety. Lieutenant Plater, a Duntroon graduate, maintained the momentum of the attack, grenading and machine gunning post after post. Just before nightfall, one of his section commanders was wounded, and while dressing the wound, Plater was shot in the shoulder blade. But, ignoring that hole in his shoulder, he took his section forward again and took care of another enemy post. Satisfied that things were now under control, he finally decided to go get his wound treated. The battalion fought on during the day, but by nightfall was still well short of the village. Honour ordered them to dig in. The following day saw skirmishing and patrols, while Honour sent a force further to the west to cut off any Japanese attempt to escape. The 2nd 14th Battalion was brought up along the beach, and by the 16th all was in place. Lieutenant Gartner, who had taken over from Plater had been active since the 10th, taking personal responsibility for the 2-inch mortar with which he caused many problems for the Japanese. They eventually managed to put a bullet into Gartner's hip at around 9am on the 16th. But the lieutenant still crawled forward 40 yards through the bush with his men and fought on until around 3pm when he could go no further and was evacuated. More ground on the right was taken before dark. As the light disappeared, some huts on the edge of the village were captured. At about the same time, 30 Japanese attempted to reinforce the position, but Captain Bidstrup sorted them out. They continued to inch forward on the 17th, taking one post at a time. Just after dawn on the 18th, Gilmore and Seward kicked off the last phase of this fight. They surged into the village under heavy fire, with Lieutenant Dolby in the lead, firing his Bren gun. The Australians overran the defences and Hattie's village was secured. They buried 170 dead Japanese and captured documents that showed... A large number of wounded had been evacuated by barges on the night before the final attack. The Battle of Gona was finally over, but Boona and San Ananda were still holding out. And I shall cover the final stages of those battles in the next episode. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast.